Now we're really getting into the nitty gritty of the question, what do I do when someone in my oikos says to me, I'm gay or I'm a lesbian or I'm transgender? What do we say? That's the question that all of you have been private messaging me about, talking to me about on the plaza, uh, wanting to know, like, what are some words? How do I respond in my practical everyday life? Well, up until now, we've been talking about conviction. We've been talking about getting clarity and conviction on what scripture teaches on this issue. We spent two lessons talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I thought that this was a really good summary of where we're going from 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness faith, love, and peace, doing with those who call on the Lord out of pure, a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish or stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed, instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I can't think of a better summary of what we are trying to be up to in this series than this set of verses. We want to uh, not be engaging in stupid, quarrelsome arguments. The point of this conversation is not to equip you to get into arguments. Rather, we want to be gentle to teach, kind to everyone. And so as we're, we do want to be equipped, but as we're doing that, we want our words to be uh, said in such a way that has kindness toward people. And um, that's not always easy. How many of you have ever noticed like your blood pressure goes up a little bit when you are in a disagreement with someone? Why can't you see it my way? What, what is your problem, right? And it, it's especially hard when it's people that we love and care about, isn't it? People that we're related to, people that uh, we, we want them to have that aha moment that we could say something and they would in that moment turn around and say, wow, you're right. <laughs> I see it now. I know, I, you know, the atheist that we want to bring to faith in Christ or, or the porn addict or the adulterer or the homosexual. We, we think that if I could just come up with the right words, you know, if I could just say the right thing, they're going to have that aha moment. They're going to turn away from their sin. Well, it might not be that. It might be a series of conversations over time, right? It, we've been talking many, many times in this class about how when you... Uh, take a stand of intentionality in a relationship, it's probably going to be a commitment to a lot of conversations, not just one conversation. Because how many of you like changed an instant moment from your previous worldview? It was a, it was a journey, wasn't it, for, for many of us? Uh, and so we want to be apt to teach. We want to be able to instruct people. And my hope, my prayer is that after this series, the Lord is going to start bringing people into your life that you have never interacted with before that have these issues because now you've been equipped and trained. And so don't be surprised if all of a sudden you're talking to people about LGBT issues because you've been trained. And maybe it was the Lord's grace that up until now, maybe you haven't interacted with people of this lifestyle. Maybe that was the Lord's grace to them, too, because you weren't ready yet. But um, this will be, uh, I think, an opening for your, in your soul to go somewhere new with the Lord and to take new risks in your faith as you're talking to people. So be apt to teach, be gentle and be kind, but we want to lead them into a knowledge of the truth, right? We're not just leading them into a knowledge of ambiguity, because our goal is that we want to help them escape from the trap of the devil that has taken them captive, right? I just think it's a beautiful summary of what we want to do. Okay, so our first point that we've been up to is conviction. And the second thing we're going to talk about today is courage. 
The rest of this lesson is all about courage and having courage in our faith and having courage in how we interact with these people. This is really going to be a conversation about having courage about how we love. I don't think there's much disagreement among Christians that we ought to love people who struggle with homosexuality. The big question is, how do we do it? What does that look like? What are the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus supposed to say? That is the real question, is how do we do it? So we're going to say a few quick words here about how we speak. And I'm going to take a position here, probably not for the first time, that is not conventional in the sense of it's countercultural right now. But I'm going to draw us back to a more classical Christian way of thinking. And you might even notice that some of our cultural vocabulary has snuck into your vocabulary. And I want to challenge you gently to think about your words and think about how you speak about these things. What I've noticed in watching many, 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 many hours of LGBT apologists is that they speak in statements of identity. They say words like, I am gay, I am a lesbian, I am a gay Christian. They use these identity statements of I am. I was born this way. God made me this way. I can't control it. I didn't choose it. These are all statements of identity. And so when we pronounce these words over people, they begin to take power. I've talked to three people in the last two days that have told me, and I guess this is usually how this happens with the Lord, is like he tells me things in threes. And so when three different people in a short period of time all tell me the same thing, I think, all right, Lord, is, are, are we up to something here? But there, there's, they were all three telling me like, yeah, I knew this young man who, was, who came out as gay and his whole life people have been telling him, oh, you're so gay, you act so gay, you, you have effeminate traits, you're like this. And they spoke these words over him and it almost became like a prophetic word over him. And I want to encourage you to check your words in how you speak about people. Because when we do that, there is something that happens where we, we begin to create a reality for that person and how they perceive themselves and how other people perceive them. And so when we use statements of identity, um, I think that this is a very ill-conceived way of speaking from a Christian worldview standpoint. The idea that same-sex attraction, or what I would say the Bible calls lust, is a fundamental declaration about a person's identity, saying, I am gay, is an assertion that must be proven. And I reject this assertion. I do not believe that being gay is an identity statement. I don't believe that's a biblical idea. I don't believe it's been demonstrated biblically. And I don't think we should use these words to describe people. Because I don't think that this is in keeping with the historic Christian way of speaking with it. Rather, I think something along the lines of saying, I struggle with the sin of homosexuality. Or so-and-so is in the struggle with this sin. I'm in a fight against lust for the same sex. A more biblical identity statement is to say, I am a child of God. Or I am washed. I am forgiven. I am justified. I am sanctified. I will be glorified. These are biblical statements of person. And so I want to challenge you today to watch your words. And if you want a really great um, biblical uh, study and the, the weeks moving forward while we have time off is I recommend going through Romans chapters 6 to 8 and write down all of the statements of identity. I had my class do this last summer in the evangelism class is write down all the statements of identity and on one side of the column put the old man and all of your identity statements of the old man and then all of the identity statements of the new man. I had Abby do this some years ago. Yeah. 
So we have the old man and the new man. And go through Romans 6 and eight to 8 and make those columns and begin to pronounce those statements over yourself and over your children if they know the Lord. That this, these are, ought to be our words that control how we think about each other as believers and as unbelievers. This, we want to get God's perspective and God's words and I think that it is, a, it is a critical deception of the enemy to try to change how we talk and bring us into agreement with statements of what I call identity theft for the LGBT community. I do not want to engage in identity theft because many of them have been deceived and they need to rediscover their true identity according to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's look at some general principles of how to interact with people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Now, our culture says this. Our culture says, here's what unconditional love is. It is unconditional acceptance of all behaviors. Isn't that where we're going? That is how our culture is defining unconditional love now is you have to accept everything I do. There's no standard of objective, moral, right, and wrong. It's whatever, uh, what is good is whatever makes me feel happy. We have a saying in our culture to follow your heart. This is not a Christian idea. To follow your heart, according to the Christian worldview, is to follow folly, like a child, a foolish child. We don't want to teach our children to follow their hearts. We want to teach our children to follow the Lord. Progressive Christianity, the Christianity of progressive evangelicalism, of revisionism, says that unconditional love is just being nice to everybody, not judging, and revisiting our interpretation of Scripture. This is what love looks like for them. You know, there's going to be people that are going to take sharp disagreement with many things that I've said in this series, especially if you go back and you, you watch the, the episode that I uploaded on Friday about the causes of homosexuality. This is not, <laughs> I lost a lot of sleep that night after posting that video. I said, you know, when, when they start rounding up Christians, they're coming to my door first because <laughs> this is, I take a lot of very controversial positions in that video. Um, But I think that what we have to be clear about in our conviction as Christians is what is the Christian worldview? What does historic Christianity have to say? And then we have to have courage about speaking that. So what does love look like? Well, here's the balance. You know me, I'm always trying to kind of find that, that middle balance is avoiding legalistic condemnation while also avoiding progressive license to sin. This is kind of the path that I have been trying to forge in this series. It spent a lot of time the very first week trying to help us get past our legalistic condemnation of the LGBT community. And I love Pastor John's um, sermon this morning. Again, it was just so in line with my heart as I'm talking today, is we're, we're, there's a sense in which we are in exile in our culture. And we want to figure out how we can interact with people, how we can be in the city and love people for where they are, even in their messy and sinful choices, right? And that's not always an easy path. But we want to avoid legalistic condemnation while at the same time avoiding the folly of progressive Christianity or what our culture is telling us. So let's look at some practical considerations about evangelism. Now, when I think about evangelism, who am I talking about? I'm talking about the unbeliever. All right, let's be clear about that. Here's some general principles of how we love the unbeliever. First of all, is love invites everyone into the kingdom of God. This is what Pastor John keeps talking about. And we are sometimes confused 
when we hear statements like, all are welcome, come as you are, belong, and then believe. Sometimes John says that. This is confusing to some of us because it sounds like what we're saying is um, all are welcome and your sin is it doesn't have to change and you don't have to change and you're just here. So we got I want to break this down a little bit into some steps of what we're really saying. So it is a very biblical idea to say that everyone is invited into the kingdom of God. This is a very biblical idea. We shouldn't feel hesitant about this. We shouldn't feel, uh, well, I'm not sure I should say that, you know. All are welcome. Come as you are. How many of you were sinners when you came to faith in Christ? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How many of you were just, you know, I'm not on a good road here. This is not working. My life feels broken, right? I've been pleasing myself. This is This is not working for me. So we do want to say, come as you are. Right? That's a very biblical idea. We shouldn't feel hesitant about that. But then the second part of it is, this is where we we fall down a lot of times as evangelicals, is we forget this step. So maybe star it, circle it, highlight it, do something to it, because this is the part of the gospel that, in my honest opinion, has been eclipsed in many presentations and that is the idea of repentance repentance i just urge you if you want a summer project read through the gospels and start tuning into the words where jesus says repent for the kingdom of god is near he's not telling them come as you are and that's all there is he's saying come as you are but then repent of your sins and we don't understand repentance. We don't talk about repentance. We don't incorporate repentance into most of our evangelism vocabulary that we use when we train people in evangelism. We just talk about believing. Yes, believing is part of the gospel. But repentance is what I call the door through which we enter the kingdom of God. And if we neglect to tell people to repent of their sins, we have not given them proper instructions about what it means to be a Christian. Remember I said, I think it was the very first or second week of this year, I said, we are not inviting people to make a decision for Jesus. We are inviting people to an entirely different worldview. Remember that? This repentance is the door through which that worldview comes. We want to begin to show people that Jesus' call to salvation involves them leaving their life behind. And we don't all do that all at once. How many of you, like, after you became a Christian, like, wow, I'm still really broken, right? (laughs) And I'm still living with my boyfriend, or I'm, you know, I'm still in this sin. But you knew something had changed, And something in your heart wanted to leave your old life behind. And you had to go in steps and the Lord worked with you over time. But something in your heart said, I'm I'm not going in this direction anymore. I'm not calling the shots. Jesus is now the boss of my life. That's what repentance begins to look like. The next step is in loving the unbeliever is that love believes in the supernatural power of the gospel to change sinful urges and desires. Jesus can change you. Jesus died for your sins and set you free from your sins. This is the one that I think that most Christians, quite honestly, um, when they're talking to people who are involved in the LGBT lifestyle, struggle with the most. They th- Okay, here's a perception I have based on a lot of conversations. People want me to tell them, what are the magic words I can tell someone that they will come to a recognition and understanding of their sinfulness? I don't have those words. Only Jesus has the words of life. See, the thing is, is that I don't know if most of us actually believe the gospel is supernatural. I don't know if we actually believe that. 
I don't know if we actually believe that telling people Jesus died on the cross in their place and that they can have new life in him if they would like to turn away from their sins Jesus will, and make Jesus the boss of their life, that he wants to make a great exchange with them. And that that will give them supernatural intervention and power in their life to change their desires. I don't think we actually believe that when it comes to homosexuality. And I think that in part we don't believe that because we've bought into the cultural verbiage of I am gay. And we've turned homosexuality into an identity statement instead of a sin. And so when we think about this, I think that there is supernatural power in the gospel. And it can change our hearts and it can change our desires. And one day we, walk, we wake up and we think, you know what? I don't want to sleep with these kind of people anymore. That that's a different desire. That the Holy Spirit comes in and changes that person. So I want to encourage you today to maybe enter into a conversation with the Lord and ask him to show you the supernatural power of the gospel to change people's urges, their desires, and their identity. Another key component of what love looks like for the unbeliever is love tells the truth with kindness. There's a difference between telling the truth and telling the truth with kindness. There's a difference between telling a woman like, wow, that dress makes you look really fat. <laughs> that, that might be the truth, but that might not be the way to do it that preserves that person's soul. But the reason I'm using this very like stark examples, I want you to see like sometimes the truth is not the end goal, right? You're trying to tell the truth with kindness. And sometimes that takes a while. Sometimes you have to be willing to be in a relationship with that person for a while, get to know them. But the focus in evangelism is with the unbeliever. It is the call to salvation and repentance so in other words, I'm not suggesting that you make sexual conversion like your lead story in evangelism. Because whatever their issue is, no matter who you're talking to, if they're an unbeliever, you know, they've got issues. You don't need to get them to a point of sexual conversion as part of the first step of evangelism. Get them to like, hey, let me tell you the gospel. Point them to Jesus. Because the gospel has supernatural power to change their urges. And if you truly believe that the Holy Spirit will come live inside that person and begin speaking to that person, you know that there's potential for their urges to change. So you don't need to have a conversation with the unbeliever. Well, first, let me explain to you why homosexuality is not, you know, you can't be gay and be a Christian. Well, you know what? Were you all cleaned up when you came to faith in Christ? You know, some of you might have come to faith in Christ and still been living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. But you knew something was different and the Holy Spirit started talking to you. And he wouldn't let you rest. And then eventually you moved out of that apartment. And then eventually you started living slowly but surely a different life. And this is what the Lord wants to do for people who are trapped in this lifestyle. And they might have been told their whole lives, you know, that homosexuality is an identity. Well, the Lord can undo that in a few seconds. So I want to look right now at John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is the story of the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets in Samaria. And I love this story because it's a great a uh, little window into evangelism and how to deal with the unbeliever who is in a sexual sin. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria in verse 4, and he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. In other words, it was about noontime. 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you know, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and their flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give to him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give to him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. Well, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you, are now, you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, but you Jews claim that place, that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. In other words, they got a little doctrinal dispute here. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And there's so much we could explicate here, but... This woman, she's got partial understanding of the scriptures. She knows something about the truth. But she doesn't have the correct interpretation. And Jesus begins to show her and reveal to her the correct interpretation. This tells me something very important, and that is there's a, such a thing as a right and a wrong interpretation of the scriptures. So we have to discern carefully what that is. I also think it's interesting that he strikes up a friendly conversation with her but the first thing isn't out of his mouth isn't, well, let me tell you about your sin. <laughs> let's, get, let's have a, a, a clearing conversation and get clarity about your sin. Right? He, he, rather, he, he has this insight about her situation. But what does he do? He, he, he calls her to supernatural new life. Because he knows that's where the real power is. And it's a wonderful example that he gives us. And I love it that this woman goes back to her village after she meets Jesus. She brings all her neighbors. She brings her oikos. And she's kind of like the first evangelist. I love that. And she wants people to have the same supernatural encounter with the real Lord Jesus Christ that she did. And she walked away and she was never the same. It's not just your mere words. It's the Holy Spirit working in and through you in a supernatural way. So the most important thing you need to know about talking to the person who is engaged in an LGBT lifestyle is the same as it is for any sinner, is listen to the Holy Spirit. Have courage, my brothers and sisters, to begin to speak into that. Have courage that you're hearing correctly and have courage to begin to talk to them. I know it's hard. I've shared with you my, some of my <laughs> many feelings. Sometimes I wish I had said something. And the reason I share those stories with you is because I want you to learn from my mistakes. Okay, we're going to watch a little montage right now from some former uh, homosexuals who came to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, listen to a little bit about the power of the gospel. I came to the study of these biblical passages about homosexuality and biblical sexuality more broadly as someone who myself uh, realized during puberty that I was attracted to the same sex. 
Um, this was not, at first, a very welcome realization for me. I, I was raised in an evangelical Christian church, um, in a Christian family, and the, 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 the moral norms that I heard were that, you know, gay sex was, was out of bounds, it was off limits, and gay people were somehow, you know, twisted and, and perverted. And, you know, it wasn't that my parents or my church went around saying that all the time, but that was just kind of in the air. That was the air I breathed. That was the atmosphere that I grew up in. And so I really did not want to be gay. I, that was not what I would have been looking for. And I realized when I was 13, 14, 15 years old that this was the pattern of my sexual attractions. I was pretty much exclusively attracted to the same sex. But all the while, while I was kind of going into this and, you know, cyclical relationships and so on, I mean, we were so young, really. I had this brother who was a Christian, fiery. My, my brother just, just above me became one like him. And so there was this witness of Jesus just in their lives, even though I really didn't like him. And we, you wouldn't say we related in a trusting or close way, but their lives spoke louder in some ways than their, you know, kind of specific preaching to me. The university where I was had a big gay student union. There were kind of two groups. There was the gay student union and there were the Christians. And I was kind of lining up with the gay student union, though it was as if because of the intercession of my brothers, the Christians were all sort of breathing down my neck, you know? Like I almost had the sense that I know I'm gonna go there. I know I'm gonna end up there. I met a couple of people my age that were Christians and they kind of began witnessing to me in a way that I could understand. And so I started thinking about it a little bit more. And I was living with a bunch of gay dudes at this point and I began to explore Jesus a little bit. And a couple of things that became really apparent to me was that Jesus meant that God kind of gave everything to us. Like he couldn't give anything more you know, than Christ on the cross. If, if this Jesus was God, then he gave everything. He gave his life. He, he couldn't give more. So I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. I also believed that God asked everything from us, that similarly to follow him, we had to give our lives. I didn't know if I would do that, could do that, wanted to do that. But I kind of knew that was what was going on with Christianity. It's pretty simple. There was a group that was meeting on campus called the Bible and Homosexuality, and I thought, well, maybe this is a key or the world's coming together. It was awful. They were all terribly liberal, and it was all basically just a gay rights advocacy group. I mean, it had very little to do with Jesus. And so the longer I sat there, I thought, hey, this has nothing to do with Jesus. And even if they're sort of attaching Jesus to this in some way, they don't know anything about this God who gave everything and then asks everything of us. So I calmly brought up that point. I just said, people, I thought I was coming to something about God and Jesus and how he helps us. All you're telling me is basically he doesn't have to help us because it's okay that we're gay. I thought, that just doesn't register. That just was not reality for me. I thought, this is not reality. So I think that was actually a step in the conversion process. And then I just kind of quietly took the step. I just thought, I'm, I believe him. I'm just gonna follow him. So, so that was my conversion. It was very quiet. It wasn't very dramatic. There was no change in my sexuality having made that decision. I think it was just a change in my allegiance. At that point, I thought, I'm going to follow Jesus. I was a them. I was one of those thems. When I embraced homosexuality in my own life, and when I lived as an openly gay man and as a gay activist during the late 1970s and early 1980s, there were servants of the Lord who tried to reason with me. Now, I must admit, when they would try to reason with me and say, Joe, don't you know better? Don't you know what Scripture teaches? Don't you know Christ is coming? Don't you know this is unnatural? I played it very cool. 
and I would answer their questions calmly because I didn't want them to think that I was phased by their arguments. But their arguments were sound. And I would go home after those conversations and be kept up all night thinking, oh my gosh, what if they're right? I would rather have been tortured than admit that I had doubts about what I was doing. But I did, did have doubts. And the cumulative effect of the seed that different people sowed into my life was repentance according to a knowledge of the truth in early 1984 when God granted that to me, which is why this scripture is particularly meaningful to me. I presumed to know what I thought Christians thought of gays and lesbians. And from a few snapshots through television or stories from from some of my friends about their Christian families, I just presumed that all Christians hated gays and lesbians. Melissa's presumptions were tested on a daily basis. Her boss, a Christian man, treated Melissa in a way that was contrary to her preconceptions. Bill was, uh, was so gracious toward me and kind and respectful. And as we worked together for several years in this professional environment, Eventually, I knew that he was genuine and safe and trustworthy and that he genuinely cared for me as a person. After many spiritual conversations with her boss, Melissa asked her live-in lesbian partner to go to church. She said yes. And there was a couple in particular in their 70s, Doris and LJ, who were pillars in this church. And of course they knew, one look at me. I mean, they knew exactly what was going on and they just They were like Christ to me and stepped right into my life and, and scooped me into their arms and knit me into their hearts. Doris and LJ taught Melissa about the Bible and showed her God's love. One day, Melissa responded. Now this is where it gets interesting because the power is not always seen when we steward truth, is it? Sometimes it's manifest immediately. I preach an evangelistic sermon, I give an altar call, and there's a manifestation when people come forward and say, I believe. It's very evident. But it's not always so evident. Often the seed we are sowing will take weeks, months, even years before it produces fruit. And yes, sometimes it will produce nothing at all. The sower, Jesus said, went out to sow. That was his responsibility, to faithfully sow. Now, some of the seed fell on very good earth, and it produced fruit. Some fell on earth that was shallow, so the seed couldn't take root. Some fell on earth that was overrun with thorns, and they choked out the seed's potential. But that wasn't the sower's responsibility. And so as a steward of truth, I must remember, I am not called by God to persuade as much as I am called by God to inform. That is to say, no matter how much I want to persuade someone, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I'm not going to answer for whether or not I could talk people out of their sin. I will answer for whether or not I faithfully stewarded the truth by expressing it responsibly and trusting the results to God's hands. And I think one of the encouragements I would want to offer is that there, there are so many stories I could tell of people who had no good reason to believe in the Christian view of marriage or the, or the Christian view of, of, of truth, who have nonetheless found their way to it because they've been so compelled by the person of Jesus and the life they found in the church. I think of one friend of mine who he describes himself as quite a, you know, happy liberal, progressive, went to an Ivy League school, had no real knowledge of or interest in the historic Christian teaching on marriage or, or anything else. And he found himself going to a weekly Eucharist service at a nearby church. And he was so captivated 
by the Jesus that he met at that service, the Jesus he heard in scripture, the Jesus he received in bread and wine, that his whole life was transformed. And he, he began to find that as he was reading scripture, he, he was compelled by the, the, the biblical story of marriage, that God created male and female, that God blessed male and female to, to be united to one another in covenantal union. And he found himself drawn into that, and he was the least likely person to do that. I think those are the kind of stories we might begin to pray for, and we might begin to expect God to do, is, is that, now that now that the state's view of marriage has, has taken a turn away from Christian, classic Christian teaching, uh, we can expect that there will be people who, who you know, look like, for all the world, they're not gonna believe what we're saying. They're not gonna believe in what, what scripture says. And yet they will, they, they do, they, they are, as they encounter the living Christ, the risen Christ uh, in the church. The power of the gospel. Hopefully that leaves you a little bit inspired. Um, see, we live in a culture right now where we're not gonna be able to legislate our way out of this. Are you with me? What we've gotta do is actually rely on the power of the gospel now, not laws that people are going to believe the scriptures and the power of the gospel um, because of their own free will in spite of the laws. And I think that it's, it's an interesting climate to be in. All right, let's talk about some practical considerations in the local church. How can we begin to flesh out some of those ideas that we heard in that video in some very practical steps? Well, in the local church, the life of the local church, we do not condemn the same-sex attracted person who abstains from homosexual behavior. That is not our point of condemnation. Some people struggle with same-sex attraction. That's just reality. We've got to be in a reality about that. Um, We want to minister to homosexuals who want to find release from their homosexual behavior and attractions. So these are people that either are coming to Christ, in the process of coming to Christ, or name the name of Christ, but they, they, they realize that their current reality in their heart is, I struggle with same-sex attraction. What is the place in the church that we can begin to make for them? I think a big one to start off with is friendships. Cultivating deep, meaningful, same-sex friendships should be strongly encouraged as part of church life. And this is more than just hanging out. This is more than just showing up for your small group. This is about like that, that older couple that saw that young lesbian gal and decided that they were going to begin to pour into her life. And that's what I'm talking about is intentional friendships. The gentleman that you saw there at the beginning of the end, Dr. Wesley Hill, he uh, still struggles with same-sex attractions. He has a PhD in New Testament, but he has a great book on cultivating friendships in the life of the church and the importance of that for people who struggle with same-sex attractions. We need to have deep discussions about our challenges and our sins and where we need to grow in holiness. We don't do this very well. We don't do this about any sin. This isn't just a a gay issue. We don't don't frequently have questions with with trusted believers that are mature in the Lord and say, hey, here's where I'm struggling. Here's where my, I'm being tempted. Here's a potential trigger for me into sin. We've got to be that vulnerable about our sin, no matter what it is. But we need to set that pattern in church life. And this isn't about a structure that the church sets up. This is about an individual decision that each of us makes in how we are going to show up for relationships. So please don't moan in your heart about, well, if the church only had better structures, then I could be vulnerable, and then I could have better accountability. It's not about a structure. It's about you making an intentional decision of, hey, I need to make sure I'm walking in life with someone that I can be honest with about, hey, here's the lust that I struggle with. Here's a potential trigger for me. I have problems with gossip or gluttony or whatever that is. Friendships. I think this one is huge for people who struggle with LGBT issues. Many of them have, not all, and I want to keep emphasizing, not all, but many of them have very broken relationships with their parents. And they need spiritual fathers and mothers. 
they need people that are about 15 to 20 years older than them that are long in the Lord to invite them over for dinner, to invite them for a holiday, to include them, to buy them birthday presents, to um, just decide that they're going to invest in people. This would be so meaningful to them. This is the struggle that I see so much with people who struggle with LGBT issues. They have broken relationships with their parents. And they need courageous men, older men and older women, to become spiritual fathers and mothers for them. To give them a space to have some emotional messiness. And that you love them anyways. Come over, be with us, hang out. Let's, let's talk. Let me listen to your life story. Let me hear about your journey to Christ. Where are you at? How can I encourage you? They need conversation. They need guidance. Many of them have been cut off as young children or teenagers from their families. And they get emotionally stunted at that age. And they need people to love them past that. Support groups and mentoring. We need to create spaces in local churches where people who do experience same-sex attraction, transgender questions, can discuss their journey with mentors who can encourage them to live in holiness. That there's a place for them to, to work through these struggles. That if they want help, like we said back on the slide where it says the big picture, we want to minister to people who want release from these things. Where do they go? What is that space? So we want to be able to, to guide them and direct them to people who have, are on that same journey and are in the same struggle of purity, just as we have support groups for, for other things. Counseling is another option. Now, this is a very controversial option because many people associate counseling with reprogramming. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about people who want to explore and get some insight into how did I arrive here? What brought me to making these lifestyle choices? As I talked about in the previous video about contributing factors to homosexuality. People who want to explore those things need counseling. And sometimes I think that it would be great. It would be amazing if the church would provide a pathway for that. To be able to, to have resources, even financial resources to help people begin to um, be able to explore those things. Many of these people have experienced deep trauma. Many of them have been in very difficult situations. And uh, they, they need professional help. Another one is caretaking. Imagine if you've never been married and you have no children and you're same-sex attracted. That's a very isolating life. What do you do in old age? What do you do if you have a, a family history of dementia in your family and you're living in constant fear of that could be me and who's going to take care of me? Who will look in on me as I grow older? Who's going to care if I'm there or not there anymore? People who are wanting to, who do struggle with same-sex attraction, but they were wanting to live a holy and pure life, so they choose celibacy. But they're alone. How can we begin to care for them in the long term? Um, I think is an, it's just at least a, a question to begin to think about and ask. Practical considerations in our home life. Oh, this is tricky. And here, the, the, the big picture is, um, I think about this, this question about what do you do with a family member who is gay is really, honestly, very not very different than what do you do with somebody and your family is dealing with adultery or fornication or porn addiction or any other issue. It's the same question. This person is in a sexual struggle. How are we going to include them in our holiday functions? How are we going to include them when they want to come to visit? This is a, a very difficult question, but it should be the same question if your young adult daughter is sleeping with her boyfriend. It's the same question. 
as to whether or not your young adult son has a boyfriend. And how you answer that question is going to be something you're going to have to wrestle through as parents. I think the most important question to ask yourself in a family relationship or a close friendship is what's my vision for this relationship? Anyone who hangs around me long enough hears me ask them this question. And when they ask me, like, well, I just don't know what to do in this relationship, or I don't know what to, how to relate to this person, the, one of the first questions I'm going to ask them is, what is your vision? What do you want in this relationship? Do you want to stay attached to them? Do you want to stay in communication with them? Do you just want politeness? Do you want to not have them in your life at all? Because whatever your vision is, that's what you're going to be acting out. And I find that much confusion in these types of relationships is the result of the fact that people are not clear about their vision. They're not clear about what they want from the relationship. And once you become clear about your vision, all of the details begin to fall into place. But if you're not clear about your vision for the relationship and what you really want, you're not going to be clear about how to act it out in your everyday life. You're not going to know what that is. It's going to be vague. It's going to be hazy. So you've got to, you've got to get rock solid about what is my vision for this relationship. Is it to stay in communication, stay in relationship, stay married, whatever that is. And I, I don't want to discount asking the Lord what he would have you do. Sometimes what we want to do is take the easy way out. I just won't communicate with them. Goodbye. But the Lord calls us into something more complicated, right? So ask the Lord. I am not your Holy Spirit. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You've got to start that conversation with the Lord as to maybe what his vision is for that person and how you're part of that. And you can have clarity about your vision. But you've got, if, I, if, if, if you come to me and ask me, well, I just don't know what to do about my gay nephew, probably the one question I'm going to ask you up front is what is your vision? If you don't know what your vision is, I'll send you away politely and say, go think about it. Because you have to be clear about what you're intending to cause in that relationship. What's my vision for staying in my difficult marriage? What's my vision for um, whether or not I want to give up on my church family and move on to a different church? It's just, what is my vision? What do I want to be up to in this relationship? Is it just an extremely helpful, clarifying question. So we've talked about conviction, we talked about courage, and we're going to talk about consistency. There's my other third C here. Who's coming to dinner? What would you do if the person was fornicating with their boyfriend or girlfriend or committing adultery? I'm, I'm suggesting be consistent with that. Homosexuality is not something that is some other type of sin. It's a sexual sin. It's a violation of our body and our soul, just like other sexual sins. So the question is, is who's coming to dinner? Be consistent. If you're, you know your daughter is sleeping with her boyfriend, are you allowing the boyfriend to come to dinner? Well, then maybe you should think about that for your gay son or your lesbian daughter. I don't know. I mean, this to me is, is the way to think about this. And for some reason, I think there's something that happens in our mind. Well, fornicating with boyfriend, girlfriend isn't quite as bad as two gay guys. But fornication is just prevalent in our culture. It's assumed that people will be fornicating before marriage. It is just the absolute most foundational assumption of relationships. But somehow we kind of can make peace with that, but not with two gay guys. So whatever you're going to decide, at least be consistent, is, is what I'm saying. So if your nephew wants to come for Christmas and bring his boyfriend, ask yourself, would I say no if he wanted to bring his girlfriend? Another person I talked to says, well, you know, uh, my friend's sexuality is none of my business. I don't need to have a conversation with my friends, with my transgender or my gay friends, because their sex is none of my business. I said, well, that might be true. So ask yourself, in the name of consistency, would it be any of your business if you found out that your friend or family member was committing adultery or fornicating or a porn addict? Would that maybe merit a conversation? Maybe? I put these in different degrees, though, and I'm probably wrong, but I still would put it in different degrees. Yeah. So why is that? 
Because we're human, <laughs> but God does not I'm a red-blooded male, and I was raised that way, yeah. and that's the way it is. Yeah. And I think that that is hard for the person who's in the LGBT lifestyle because then they're not invited into the wonderfulness that could be your family. That you could be, you could be ministering to somebody who's super broken. And um, I think that this issue of consistency is part of what L- many LGBT people pick up on. In they accuse us of hypocrisy or using different weights and measures on them. And that's why I'm advocating a position of consistency. If you've got issues with sin, that's fine. Again, you've got to go to the Lord and figure out those particulars. I'm not going to tell you how to live that out. Uh, Facing dilemmas. I mean, there's just a never-ending list of dilemmas here. What do I do about exposing my younger children to sinful relationships? That's a real question. When you have... When you have relatives with living with boyfriends, girlfriends, same-sex friends, whatever, what do you do about younger children? That is a big question. What do I do about sleeping situations if they're coming over for vacation? Do I go to my gay friend's wedding? Um, this is the one that my friend is going through right now. Is Do I pay for my daughter's drugs to transition to being a man? Do I bake a cake? In other words, do I engage in business practices with gay people? These are all questions that we are going to be facing. What do I do when my friends are connected to my child when they come out on social media? What do I, but this is related to the question of what do I do when my child is related to all of my friends on social media in general? And they go off to college and they, their friends start tagging them in, in pictures of them at drinking parties. I don't want to know that, you know? So this, is, this isn't just a gay issue. This is, this is a larger question that we have to think through. And it's complicated. When someone is engaged in a state of long-term, unrepentant sin, then life for the, Christian around, the Christians around that person becomes a series of complex choices and awkward conversations. But when you have people that want us to celebrate their sin and affirm their sin, that's where things get really complicated. And as I've, I've talked to my friends who are engaged in this life project right now, they'll tell you it, it never ends. It is a lot of complicated conversations. And they just have to keep asking the Lord, what would you have me do in this situation? Okay, what about this situation? What do I do now? And not everybody's going to agree on what those things are. And you might decide for a while, I can live with this. And then later you decide, I can't live with that anymore. Or I can live with more. But the Lord has to work in us at the same time. And I, I've told my friend many times, uh, and this is an old friend of mine from, from Biola days. It, it, she has four children, two boys and two girls. She homeschooled her children all the way through high school, and then her daughter decides she wants to be a man. And you, you think that that's not disheartening for her? Is it confusing? How, how did we arrive here? What's happening? Every day of her life, as a good conservative evangelical Christian mom, is I have a never-ending series of dilemmas now about my daughter. And how do I protect my other children who are younger how do I even protect her from herself? She wanted to go sign up in college in the guy's dorm. My friend is terrified she's going to get sexually assaulted. I mean, she's like, do I allow that? What do I do? And you've got to just be in that conversation with the Lord. Because how you love, the Lord knows what's best. And he's going to guide and direct you. These are just some general Principles. I've posted a couple of videos on the website where I posted some interviews with people. One is my friend who is, uh, her ex-husband is gay, and they are co-parenting their son together. And that is a lot of complicated situations. And then I posted another interview with another friend of mine whose uh, son is gay. And those will give you some more practical ideas for how they're doing that in their life and how they're living this out.
really quick, we're a little over time, is conclusions. In this whole conversation, starting all the way back at week one, one of the things we want to do is separate people's real-life situations from political positions. We can talk about the politics, no problem. But I hope that you've caught a vision for how to love people as individuals, to figure out where their story is and where they're coming from and how you can begin to step into their life with them. And when you see a member of the LGBT community, I hope, I hope, I hope that one of the first questions you ask is how does the father see this person? Not how do I see them. It's how does the father see them? Does the father see them as loved, as a son, as a daughter? And then how can I partner with the Lord in that vision to begin to speak life, grace, truth, and love into that person's situation? Ask the Lord what he wants you to do in that situation that you're facing. He will guide and direct you. Be generous in kindness and patience toward LGBT people. They've probably been through a lot. They probably have. There's probably a lot of hurt and shame and pain in their lives. So be kind. And invite them into your life. Because if you're so secure, then what's to, be, what's to fear? If this was your child, I mean, those of you who have children who have walked away from the Lord, isn't one of your prayers that some strong Christian would come into their life and begin to speak life into them? So be that for someone else's kid. This is your chance to sow into that for someone else's child. Have conviction. Don't buy into the shell game of identity versus sinful behavior. And be courageous and consistent and trust the Holy Spirit for the outcome. Don't go by outward appearances. Don't go by the failure of one or two conversations. You never know what the Holy Spirit is doing behind the scenes, just as he's done in your life and your life and your life. And haven't we all changed our minds over time? So there's a lot more resources available on the class website. I've put a ton of stuff there if you want more books more videos, more questions. You want links to the videos that I played in class, just highlights. You want to see the whole thing. You can get all of that stuff there. I've also created a playlist on YouTube with a bunch of resources that you can point yourself to. You can point other people to. I really do hope that you will share these messages with other people that they can get equipped to. And I really would mean a lot to me if you would share with me uh, in the days to come how these messages have affected you and changed you, challenged you, and how you've used them in, in your own life. And I want to close our class this year with a, a little thought. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had the conversation about the two-creation model. You remember that? How this life is not all that there is. And that our perspective as Christians is we're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. And I want to encourage you today that um, in the new heaven and new earth, we will dwell with the Father face to face. That's the big picture. That's what we're calling people into. Don't you want to have that face to face relationship with the Father for all eternity? Don't get, fall into the trap that this is all that there is. This person's brokenness, this person's sin, my own brokenness, my own sin. It's not, it's the new creation. And we are created for that fellowship in the new creation. I'm going to end with uh, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. He said, write this down for these words are true and trustworthy. And he said to, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Just like the woman at the well. He who overcomes will inherit all this. Notice what it says. He who overcomes. This is a journey. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. And then it ends in this very sad way. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderer, the sexually immoral, those who practice the magic arts and the idolaters and all liars, and their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur for this is the second death. See, we're, we're calling people to a vision of eternal life. We're wanting to save them from the second death. So I hope today you'll have some courage in the Lord to call the LGBT people in your life into new life in the new Jerusalem to help snatch them from death and deception. Let's pray. Father, oh, you have so much love for us. It is not your will that any of us should perish, and yet you warn us repeatedly of the consequences of our disobedience. And Lord, we want every person we know to know you. But we are those people that must speak up, and we must have courage, and we must hear your voice. So we ask today that you would give us courage. And that we would truly believe that the, you have the words of life. You are the living water. And that only in you can be found a supernatural power to change our lives, change our urges, and change our passions. Turn our hearts toward you a little more every day. For your glory and the good of our neighbor. Amen.